the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Love Never Fails Radio. Love Never Fails. Inviting you to join in the fight for love. There are millions of people who are trapped in modern day slavery. Take a stand to do something against this injustice. Join the fight against human trafficking. If you truly love, set the captives. Each week, this program sheds light on the needs of vulnerable people in our community who are impacted by human trafficking, homelessness, addiction, and abuse, and celebrates the work of those who are meeting them right where they are and expressing to them that they are precious, valued, and loved. Our goal is to see this radio audience move to compassion demonstrated in acts of service, generosity, and gifts of time. Now, here's the host of Love Never Fails Radio, founder and executive director of Love Never Fails, Vanessa Russell. Welcome to Love Never Fails Radio. Wow, happy new year. I am so excited uh, to just uh, be back with you. It's been a couple weeks now. We've been uh, replaying some of our best shows and uh, also um, sharing the news with you that we have changed our name. And of course, the great news about the new things in this year that Benita is uh, pursuing. And we definitely are um, just so grateful for what God is doing with Love Never Fails Radio. Uh, just to set the stage a little bit before I introduce our guest, um, I wanted to share with you just vision, a little bit of the vision for the show as we move forward. Uh, we, you know, we have spent the last three years uh, at, under the name Abolition Radio, and it was a really a gift that uh, Dave Niederhood gave to Love Never Fails to allow us to uh, launch our uh, radio uh, presence and um, and and mission uh, and really cast the vision for Love Never Fails uh, using Abolition Radio. Abolition Radio, by the way, will be uh, will be back. We'll be back um, probably on podcasts and hosted by Dave Niederhood in the months to come. And please do keep him in prayer. He's continuing to uh, receive medical attention there in in uh, in Singapore, and he's in our prayers. But as we've transitioned um, our radio show to Love Never fails radio um, there's been a little bit of a transition in our focus and you know the 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 main thing that I wanted to share with you that the Lord has pressed upon my heart as we've gone over these three years and we've held about 150 shows is that the first step to eradicating human trafficking is to compel each of us to love like Christ loves and gave himself up for us and i think and i and i look to john 15:12 which says my command is this love each other as i have loved you 
And so it is really my hope that through this show that we begin to care about the pain and suffering that others are experiencing, whether by sex trafficking or labor trafficking or homelessness or illness or incarceration or depression or abandonment or an unemployment, all of these things that are really quite prevalent for us right now. And there's a lot of people that are very sick with the flu. There's um, natural disasters that are happening all around us. And as we become sensitive to those things that are happening around us, I believe that we will be sensitive to um, the issues that come up around human trafficking, kind of kind of disconnected, but very much connected. And those of you who are um, aligned with my heart and uh, and wanting to hear more from the Lord in this space, I believe uh, will agree that this is this is the right thing to do. And so as we uh, as we do that this year, we're going to be hearing from uh, as we have over the last three years, we're going to be hearing from partners such as the one you're going to hear from today, which is doing amazing work uh, launching. A, a book that is uh, really um, you know, going to spark us to think more about incarceration, or, or you know, or, or human trafficking, or or what you know, any of the topics I just mentioned. We're going to hear from these partners that are doing great work in the community. Uh, we're also going to receive sermonettes from myself and other people who are talking about these issues, and so we'll play some of those sermonettes throughout the year. And then we'll also have a segment called "One Voice Crying in the Wilderness," where I will go out and interview people that I meet in the streets, maybe people like like yourself that um, I, I ask questions about what do you know about human trafficking or what do you think about, um, you know, incarceration and um, the three strikes law or, you know, the implications to many to the family members that are left behind and what are we doing to serve them and and things of that nature. And so I'll be asking some of those questions in the street of people like you and I and also of people that are out there living the life that are out there experiencing the homelessness or the trafficking and hear from them directly what it is that they need. So you're going to hear um, uh, quite a bit of, um, you know, uh, quite a bit from different people in different settings this year. And I hope that um, you will continue to keep me in your prayers as uh, as we navigate this new uh, landscape, this new journey that the Lord has put before us uh, with the same heart, which is to um, bring us again to the place where we love as Christ loved. And so um, with that, a little bit of intro for our new show. Um, with that, I want to um, take a moment to introduce our first guest. And I'm so excited um, to have him on. Um, what a blessing. I've, uh, I was actually introduced to him by Benita, who went to the CCDA conference last year. And um, and it is Pastor Dominic Dubois-Gilliard, uh, who is actually um, the director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation, uh, and, uh, and that's part of the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination. And he is um, doing some amazing work as the national director uh, there at ECC, but also he is an author, and he is launching his new book, which is Rethink thinking incarceration and we're going to be talking about this topic today welcome dominique thank you. yeah thank you yes so much. Um, it's an honor to be with you oh yes we we just love um what you're doing um we love that you have um um really lent yourself to the people, to God, to the people that God has assigned in your life, and it's it's very apparent in your bio. And you know, I was looking at your bio. There, there was one part of your bio that was kind of. 
problematic for me, but I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a second. But <laughs> um, <laughs> just the fact that you, you know, you've pastored in Chicago, then in Oakland, then in uh, there was another city that I noticed there. Where else? Atlanta. 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 So you've mm-hmm. been moving around and just kind of letting the Lord lead, huh? Hey man, hey man. Uh, just trying to make myself a willing, open vessel uh, to be led by the Spirit. Hey man. Well, uh, I admire that, and um, and I think that um, when you are willing, uh, only good things can come. Right? Uh, things that you know, exceedingly and abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Is that is that has that been true for you? Amen. Amen. That's totally been true. Um, and I mean, even this path that God has taken me on is never one that I expected to be going on myself. So it's completely uh, learning to submit yourself to the will of God. Amen. Amen. Well, you have a a book that is launching, and it's actually going to be available uh, for purchase February 6th, but you're doing some um, book launches and book parties uh, throughout even the Bay Area this Sunday. Uh, tomorrow, you will be at First Covenant Church in Oakland uh, preaching at both of their services and then uh, uh, doing a, a launch for your book. Uh, is that right? Correct. Um, I will be preaching at both the 9 and 11 o'clock service at First Covenant Church of Oakland. And then at 3 o'clock, we will be having a book launch uh, conversation, really pressing into some of the content within the book. Okay. And so let's talk about this book that you have. So, you know, uh, as you know, uh, we've talked about it many times on on the show, uh, the correlation between exploitation, right, which when people hear that uh, or human trafficking, they tend to think uh, just about maybe sex trafficking, um, being sold on a street or in a hotel or online, a brothel. Um, and, and, uh, you know, they tend to, or, or perhaps labor trafficking. Um, and, and that I would say that comes up some of the time, although sex trafficking seems to be the, the thing that people focus on much, but labor trafficking and working for very low, low or no pay, uh, under the control of another. Um, but what about incarceration? Is incarceration a form of exploitation. Um, and uh, I was actually on Life, like Craig Roberts uh, uh, hosts the show Lifeline here on KFAX. And I was uh, on his show yesterday and he um, he was making mention of the amount that it costs for an education, you know, $15,000 to educate a person per year and um, twenty. Upwards of twenty to fifty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate them, and wondering and questioning what is, uh, you know, what does that mean when we are willing to spend more on uh, to incarcerate a person and keep them in a cage than we are to educate them and empower them, and. Exactly. And so I see, you know, you've you've provided some stats here in your excerpt from your book and you're sort of exploring rethinking incarceration. So when I I think we're going to go to break and uh, when we come back, I'd, I'd love to hear what you know, how did you get started with this book? What inspired you to write it and what do you hope to accomplish, um, uh, you know, as readers uh, start to rethink incarceration? We'll be right back. And thank you for listening to Love Never Fails Radio. For more information on this program, visit loveneverfailsus.com. That's loveneverfailsus.com. 
We'll be right back with more right after these messages. Welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio, where you are invited to turn your compassion into action and love those in your midst. And welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio. We are in the studio today uh, with our guest, Pastor Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, who is also the author of a, a book that will be launching February 6th titled Rethinking Incarceration. Dominique, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Um, and maybe just jumping right in. Actually, I, I do want to invite the listening audience. Uh, let us know if you'd like to hear more about this book. Maybe you'd like to have Dominique come out and uh, share a little bit with you or or invite him to um, do a book launch party. Uh, do reach out to us at 844-249-2698. We can get that over to him. If you want to just comment on the new uh, brand and uh, ask us questions about what we're doing, our vision, uh, please do give us a call. And you can also email me at Vanessa at loveneverfailsus.com. So Dominique, tell us a little bit about how, you know, what inspired you to write this book and uh, what do you what, what are your hopes uh, in terms of rethinking incarceration for our readers? Yes, thank you. Um, there are two real events that inspired me to write the book. The first one is a story that I opened the book with. Uh, it was a story that happened my senior year of undergrad um, at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Um, there was a 92-year-old grandmother named Catherine Johnston who uh, lived in a marginalized community that police had identified as having uh, superfluous drug trafficking. And so they said that they had camped out her house and they had been watching um, and they had identified it as an epicenter for drug trafficking. And so one night in the middle of the night at four o'clock in the morning, they kick in her door and they uh, try to seize the house. And in the midst of it, you know, she's a elderly woman living by herself, she panics and she runs to try to get um, protection and they end up deploying 43 bullets and killing her um, in cold blood right in her living room. And in the midst of uh, what happened, um, after they searched the house, after they murdered her, there literally were no drugs, no drug paraphernalia, nothing around the entire house. And so the officers panicked and decided to try to cover uh, cover up their transgressions by planting drugs in the house. Um, Ultimately, in the court proceedings, it came out that the officers uh, had forged documents to get a no-knock warrant because she lived in a particular community, which meant that they could go in and seize her property without actually having or presenting a proper warrant um, that they would have to do in any other community, and that they were found guilty for planting drugs and uh, really just trying to cover up what they had done. And so for me, I was in undergrad at that moment, and I was a senior African-American studies major, and my academic community was really imploring me to be involved in what was going on. They say, we have to stand up for justice. We have to advocate for people like Captain Johnston and communities that are designated as no-knock warrant communities because they're uh, vulnerable to this kind of violence and this kind of um, interrogation um, that really should be illegal. Um, but my, my church community wasn't calling me to be involved in the same way. 
And I really struggled with that because if there's anything that should be causing me to advocate for others, to stand in solidarity, and to advocate for justice, it should be Jesus Christ in my relationship, uh, my transformative relationship with God that has called me to be a new creation, not my academic setting. So that was the first kind of moment of dissonance. And the second one came when I was actually, the first pastoral call I took out to Oakland, um, I was working in a community um, in West Oakland, and we were trying to um, figure out how we can get the congregation to be more reflective of the community in which it was founded in. And as I went and spent time with community members, was uh, spending time in the local context, I realized that I couldn't knock on five doors in a row without meeting a family that was impacted by mass incarceration. But within our ecclesial context, we had never uttered those words. And so I said, you know, if the gospel is really going to be good news, it has to incarnate itself within the pain of the people. And we have to make it contextual. And if people's lives are being defined and marked by this, if what we're preaching and teaching and discipling people into on an everyday basis, if it doesn't touch the pain of the people, then people don't really get to understand the good news of the gospel. That's right. And so those were the two things that really sparked me to write the book. Wow. Whoa. I got chills going and going and going. I tell you, uh, <laughs> and uh, you're getting me fired up. <laughs> um you know, I'm I'm actually going to be speaking with uh, one of my my buddies, OG Reverend Harry Williams, um, at o- Oakland City Church on Monday uh, mm. for Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday, and um, the the title of the uh, the day is "Can Oakland Be Healed?" And uh, when I think about uh, you know, I'm I'm still praying about what I'm going to say. I'm going to have a few minutes to share, and and when I think about this issue of mass incarceration. And, um, you know, like you said, just how common it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, the thing is that troubles me. So uh, the thing that, you know, yeah, there's the the sad, the, the difficult part about the person, whoever is being incarcerated and the impact to their life. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and 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 in many cases, the corruption that may have added to them being there, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, not being aware, you know, uh, of the tactics that you can lie during interrogations, that you can um, falsify DNA, that you, you know, and forcing people to plea out. We know that there's a whole plea strategy that is working very effectively, especially in African-American and Hispanic, um, uh, Latino-American communities. And um, and so, unfortunately, there's a direct correlation, the largest populace, uh, you know, populace of uh, in the in 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 uh, prison is is African-American males and um, and 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 Hispanic males. And so the challenge uh, that I also am faced with is not just are their lives just sort of tossed away, but what about their families that are left behind, you know, like the 92 year old grandmother? I mean, the children, the wife. And what is the church's response to them as they as they as they um, as they are broken, as they are, you know, yeah, for, you know, as a society, this person broke our laws and Mm -hmm. and we want to be safe from them. But that's somebody's dad. Yeah. And that daughter, that son, they don't know all that. They don't know what daddy's dead. They just know that daddy isn't coming home anymore. Mm 
Yeah, and, there's four real tangible ways that the church can be involved. I say, I say the church can be involved in the work of prevention. The work, the church can be involved in actually doing ministry to people who are incarcerated. But then uh, equally as important as what you just mentioned is walking alongside of family members who have incarcerated loved ones. Yeah. And then how do we help on the reentry side of things? Yeah. There are four very practical ways, and every church in some way, shape, or form should be involved in one of the four ways. We're not all called to the same thing, but we're all called to something. To something. Yes. Amen. So, you know, we're going to, in the next segment, I'm going to talk a little bit about an IT academy that we're launching. Love Number Fails is launching towards the end of the month on the 26th of this month. Uh, We're launching it and we have uh, a couple of uh, people in the program that are survivors of human trafficking, a couple others that are um, reentry, previously incarcerated, others that were in foster care um, and are now transitional age youth and trying to transition into their life. And and uh, and just thinking about the reentry piece, um, we're super excited about this opportunity to transform lives. Um, but you know, I, I, I'd like to talk to you, you know, I'd like to better understand, you know, what it, what is your perspective? And maybe when we come back, we can start with that. What is your perspective on, um, you know, there's, there's a philosophy that leads up to someone becoming incarcerated. And then there's a philosophy around when they come out and whether they're set up to participate, even with training, even with education, are they mm-hmm. set up to participate in society, or are they just living a uh, another you know phase of incarceration, even while uh, even while living outside of the bars, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and specifically, I, I, I you know I, there are people that I know that are living with felonies. And um, and they literally have, you know, are wearing, you know, a a scarlet letter. Uh, They cannot even with the right levels of education, they they seem to be very limited in how well they can proceed and how well their families can get back to a place of sustainability. And so when we come back, I'd like to hear from you about sort of both sides of that um, and uh, and and then dig some more into your book. So we'll be right back. And thank you for listening to Love Never Fails Radio. To join in the fight for love, visit loveneverfailsus.com. Don't go away. Love Never Fails Radio will return right after these messages from our sponsors. Welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio, where you are invited to turn your compassion into action and love those in your midst. And welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio. We invite you, this is a listener-supported ministry, and uh, we invite you to join us in this fight for love by giving today at loveneverfailsus.com forward slash donate. Uh, you can also uh, join us in prayer. We do pray as, a, as an organization every first Sunday of the month. And in the city where you are, just shoot an email over to prayer at loveneverfailsus.com and tell us, 
I'm praying with you and for you. And um, and certainly uh, we we just really appreciate uh, lifting up our leaders and also the survivors that we're working with. We're in studio today uh, with a leader and partner who is uh, just launch or is launching a book uh, called Rethinking Incarceration. And that's Pastor Dominique Dubois-Gilliard. And um, we're just uh, having a great conversation as we contemplate as we rethink incarceration. So before the break, we were uh, just talking a bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the culture and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the challenges really in our day-to-day community that lend themselves and lead up to an initial incarceration. And then when someone has done their time, the culture that they meet and the challenges that they meet when they come out with a felony record. And I'd love to get your perspective. Do you discuss that in your book? Yeah, I do. I talk um, about how the reality is that many people never get a second chance. Um, We claim that people are incarcerated to pay their debt to society, but the reality is when they come back um, into society as returning citizens, they're brandished with the scarlet letter that never really allows them to have a second chance at life. Um, And I think particularly when we understand the ways in which this has become even more of a social economic reality for particularly fathers who go in who have children who are laced with child support payments or people who are now being forced to pay back the cost of their own incarceration because of the way the systems and structures have shifted. So if you come out and particularly with the felony, you can't get a job um, or you can't get a job that pays you enough to be able to meet the minimum payments for your child support or for you having to repay the cost of your incarceration, then that's a violation of your parole and then you're sent right back. And so we have to understand the ways in which we currently have a system that is so fundamentally broken that it seems that it's more uh, intent on sending people back to prison as opposed to empowering them to live new, restored, and fully integrated lives um, as productive members of society. And that's not even to mention some of the dehumanization and the um, kind of exploitation that happens to people for so long in the midst of their incarceration, particularly individuals who have to uh, go through solitary confinement where people literally are forced to live in uh, isolation from everyone else for 23 hours of the day, and they have access to sunlight and human interaction for one day throughout the uh, throughout the 24-hour cycle. Yeah, for one hour, right? For one yeah, hour I mean, during sorry, the, one hour. Yeah, yeah. So 23 for 23 hours, they are forced in isolation, um, and they have human contact and sunlight for access for one hour out of the 24-hour cycle. And I and I, I I can bet you that there's someone who's listening right now that says, "Well, that's good." Because that sends a strong message to people that are breaking laws that this is no place to be. And we, you know, and and I've even heard um, some folks say, well, they have a better life than people that are out here. They have a bed. They have a they have food. They have, um, you know, clothing and laundry and so on. And so they've got it made, you know, and I've heard these kinds of um, these kinds of uh, uh, attitudes. Um, but. I, I challenge um, those that are thinking along those lines. I challenge you um, to, you know, to think as Christ would think 
about this situation and what would Christ say? Yes, we do have to be accountable for our actions, but um, I just, you know, I think about myself. I'm just going to speak on myself and think, speak on things that I've done. And and I really should be sitting up in a, a cell somewhere with some of the things that I've done. Um, yeah. And and yet I'm here because of the grace of God. Um, I think your question goes to the, the to the heart of one of the things that I really explore in my book. Um, I think Christians have to think distinctively about justice because God's justice is different than secular justice. Biblically, uh, the Bible consistently reveals that restoration, not punitiveness, is at the heart of God's justice. Divine justice is restorative and reconciling, not retributive and isolating. Restorative justice of God is woven throughout Scripture, and biblically we see that God is working amid brokenness, restoring victims, communities, and defenders. And the church's inability to respond to crime in a biblically rooted way that testifies to the restorative nature of God's justice has emboldened a retributive system that is actually uh, doing more harm than most than good for most people who are actually able to get out of the system and trying to reintegrate into society. Yes, yes, the more more harm than good. And when is enough enough? When have yeah. we learned a lesson, you know, and and I just think about um folks that have been have served their time and they come yeah. out I, I I heard uh, a story uh, earlier this week, and I was pretty I was taken aback because it was from a very unlikely person, someone who uh, I think highly of, I respect, and I, and I say unlikely because of the negative connotation when somebody says I'm a felon. And here yeah. I was talking to a pastor who told me uh, I have a felony on my record, and it, I haven't had it expunged yet. I've had it for 19 years. Yeah. And he said he got it, um, you know, for um, fraud. And yeah. um, he actually confessed when he when he, um, ha- you know, when he realized what he had done, when he acknowledged what he had done, he confessed it and actually was the one. No one no one came looking for him. He mm-hmm. went and turned himself in. Yep. And he repaid the debt. Yep. But the felony remains. Yeah, and here he does. is 19 years later, and he had to disclose to his employer recently, I have, I'm a felon. Yeah. And, and I just, I, I thought, wow. And I believe the, the reason why I was, I came into contact with this was because you and I were going to talk and it just, mm-hmm. it gave me a soft heart and a relevant, very real, this is someone who's giving back who's doing so much for the community, who's extremely capable, very educated. And yet, if you just looked at him on paper, you'd say no. Yeah, um, two things to that. I think uh, when I was in Oakland, uh, for those listening, I lived in Oakland, was working and ministering there up until April. And uh, most recently, I was doing a lot of work with YEP, the Youth Employment uh, Mm -hmm. Program right there. And one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about our present system is uh, how many states actually do not have a law that prohibits them from charging juveniles with adults. 
offenses. Mm. And when a juvenile is charged as an adult, their sentences are more severe, and they actually are not housed in juvenile facilities, but they're housed in adult prisons. When juveniles are housed with adults, the likelihood of being sexually assaulted and of them committing suicide uh, grows exponentially. We know this. We have statistical data to back it up. The states continue to pass this legislation that allow kids as young as nine years old to be sentenced as adults Mm -hmm. um, throughout our nation. And as somebody who's worked with youth in all three of those cities I mentioned earlier, I can tell you there is a fundamental difference between youth who get in trouble and they get incarcerated in a juvenile facility versus youth who go to adult facilities. Mm -hmm. Youth will tell you, they say, I went in interested in petty crime. I came out of that adult facility as a hardened criminal. Mm -hmm. Like, I am a criminal now. That is my identity. That's how I see myself. Because the things that I was taught, the things that I was exposed to is something that no kid should ever be exposed to. Yes. So there's there's that piece of it, but I think the other piece uh, is what you were just talking about. I talk about a story in um, the book about a friend of mine who has uh, come out of incarceration, was incarcerated for 15 years, met the Lord there, became a professor minister, um, because most people don't even realize how robust the church is behind the walls of uh, incarceration. There are churches that are thriving in the midst of incarceration, where they're literally being, people who are being discipled and being poured into to the point that they are literally sending some people who are incarcerated as missionaries to other uh, facilities to actually plant churches there. Like people, what? Like we don't, I I talk all all about that in the book. Wow. And one of the stories I talk about is a friend of mine who was incarcerated for 15 years, became this prophetic minister, and he's come out, he's been released, and he has tried to get a job as a pastor, and as soon as people see that he has a felony on his record, they, they're not interested anymore. Mm. And just, you know, what does it mean for people who are really striving to have a new life in Christ? to continuously have the doors of the church closed to them because of their felony record. There has to be something distinctive about who we are as people of God and how we respond to people who have made mistakes because we know that we are only saved and redeemed because of the grace of God. And so that grace must be imprinted upon us and hallmark how we interact with other people who make mistakes and are striving to turn their lives around again. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to take a break um, and uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk some more. Uh, I'm going to I want to make I want to discuss the loss of revenue to states as Mm -hmm. as we uh, look at a reduction in incarceration and the dependency on the state. Uh, the dependency on incarceration at the state level. I want to talk a little bit about that when we come back. And you are listening to Love Never Fails Radio, and thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back. For more information on this program, visit loveneverfailsus.com. That's loveneverfailsus.com. We'll be right back with more right after these messages. Welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio, where you are invited to turn your compassion into action 
and love those in your midst. And welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio. We welcome you to uh, reach out to us and let us know if uh, this is uh, helping you to rethink incarceration uh, and also helping you to think about how, uh, you know, what your love walk looks like. Uh, We want to hear from you. And if you're in need of prayer, we also want to hear from you. You can reach us at 844-249-2698. You can also find out more about Love Never Fails at our website, which is Love Never Fails us.com or our Facebook page, which is Love Never Fails Radio. All right. Well, um, we're we're dealing here uh, with our guest, uh, Dominique Gilliard, and we are uh, Pastor Dominique Gilliard, and we are talking about his book, Rethinking Incarceration. Uh, one of the headlines that just jumped out to me, uh, it actually was published in 2016, but it just uh, it's burned a, 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 a horrible image in my mind. Uh, Mississippi jails are losing inmates and local officials are devastated by the loss of revenue. And, um, you know, just thinking about the the correlation between privatization of incarceration and the dependency at the state level on that income uh, is, uh, isn't that a conflict of interest? For sure. For sure. Um, One of the things I talk about in the book is that private prisons are paid a per diem or monthly rate, either per inmate or for each available facility bed, whether occupied or not. These quotas that they sign when they actually bring a private prison into a community dictate the number of prisoners who must occupy beds in the facilities nightly. And the quotas range from anything from requiring 70% of the beds to be filled every single night to 100% of the beds to be filled every single night. So if you have a contract that says literally every single facility in this jail has to be filled, and if it's not filled, we still have to pay for it, that's going to incentivize you to incarcerate people. That's right. Yeah, here in the, in the state of Mississippi, it says the state guaranteed that the local jails would never be less than 80% occupied, and the locals would get a 3% boost in compensation each each year. Today, the state pays $29.74 per day per prisoner to the regional facilities, a deal that worked for everybody as long as the buildings were stuffed full with bodies. Horrible. That's just, you know, I mean, where's the humanity in that? Yeah, and we think about immigration offenses and the rhetoric that we're hearing around immigration right now. Most people who are arrested for immigration offenses are housed in those private prisons. My God. My God. Well, another my God is what's going on with uh, our little sister, Centoya Brown, out of Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I've just been following her story. I actually came across it by watching uh, her documentary on Netflix. And I was horrified to, um, to hear you know, about how she is a 16 year old. And I encourage you guys to to uh, take a look at that um, that documentary. But she is a 16 year old uh, had been exploited, I want to say, for two years prior. So from 14 to 16, she came from a very difficult background, had been adopted. And uh, her adopted mom does seem to be a very loving woman. But she had a lot of um, 
um, you know, psychological things that she was dealing with, even as a as a child. And there she was at 16 years old. She had been uh, purchased by a buyer, 43 year old buyer, who was a real estate agent, um, Johnny Mitchell Allen. And she uh, he solicited her for sex. He brought her to his home. Uh, he gave her some. Uh, there was a, a, a emphasis about how he had fed her, as if that was a way that he would show her kindness. And then she did him the disservice of murdering him. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was so unfortunate the way that it was characterized in the court proceedings and the way that the attorney was able to uh, sway the jurors to sort of see him as this innocent guy who just wanted to uh, be kind to this little girl and 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 rape her um, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, characterizing what his intentions were. And um, apparently he had guns in, in his home. Uh, she became uh, scared, thinking that he was reaching for a gun to shoot her. And she shot him with one of the guns that he, you know, that were in his possession in his home. Um, and from there, she has been in jail, incarcerated for 16, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, um, 15 years uh, she has been incarcerated and she is facing life in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, um, uh, you know, the Kardashians have joined in this fight. Uh, uh, their, I, I, I signed a petition. There's one that's going around that has hundreds of thousands of folks um, um, signed on to ask the uh, ask for a federal pardon. And um, and, you know, the, she's really if, if nothing is done, she will not be up for parole until she's 69 years old. Uh, wow. These cases are are out there happening. And um, just right now in the in the Bay Area, I have been pulled into a case where a woman who's been exploited for 18 years is being co- charged as a co-conspirator as a human trafficker because she married to her trafficker. Um, and more and more, we need to understand what are the dynamics? What are the things that are leading up to the incident? Number one. Mm-hmm. And um, and then and we need to make sure that we're educated judges, jurors, um, district, uh, attorneys. district attorneys, public defenders, private attorneys. We got to we got to get educated yep. and use the right language. Yep. And 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 represent the the true story that is at hand and then and then the you know the crime needs to correlate with the time. Yes. Yes. And then we've got to after we do that we've got to uh when the person is released give them a chance. Give Amen. them a chance to walk in the newness and the fullness of who they are and who they were created to be. So, you know, do you touch at all on, you know, the the ways in which, uh, you know, victims uh, or or, or, uh, the ways in which those who are being incarcerated are represented? You know, uh, like you said, uh, a 16 year old being tried as an adult, which is what happened to Centoya. When you see her, she's sitting there with pigtails on her head. She looks like she's about 12. When she talks, she's very smart, but you can tell she she's a child. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, it, w- what are we doing as it relates to that? 
I actually talk about both things that you just raised. Um, I talk about this, this, this case with Centoya is not, it has a legacy. It has vestiges in our past. And I talk about uh, one of the harsh realities is that black women have consistently been incarcerated for defending themselves from assault, both sexually and physically. Mm. Um, these arrests began right after the Emancipation Proclamation as re- recently liberated black women sought to enforce their newfound freedom by thwarting the sexual violence of white men um, who previously owned them and were therefore legally entitled to the prey on their bodies in whatever way they wished. Mm. Whether, whether it be the woman arrested and tried for murder after fatally stabbing an intoxicated man who was attempting to sexually assault her on a streetcar in Philadelphia in 1919, or Mar- Marissa Alexander, the woman who was sentenced to 20 years in prison for firing a warning shot into the air when confronted and threatened by her abusive former husband. Um, There's a long, troublesome history of incarcerating black women for simply practicing their legal right to self-defense. And this is something that I don't think we talk about enough when we talk about mass incarceration. And so I I really wanted to center the question of uh, what does it mean to look contextually at uh, violent crime um, in the way that you just raised. But I also talked about another uh, case um, it, that happened in Tulia, Texas. Um, a lot of people, a number of people are a little bit more familiar with this case, but this was a case where there was a corrupt officer named Tom Coleman who uh, went into this part of this community where it was almost all black, and he had created fallacious narratives about actually selling drugs to uh, impoverished, undereducated people. And he was always charging them with crimes that were just above the amount of possession or distribution that would warrant a felony. Mm. And so people literally who had never had any kind of criminal records were coming before the court and they were being tried for sentences as long as 90 to life with no criminal record. Oh, I saw this. Yes. And Coleman was able to do this to the point that they did a drug raid in the community where they um, arrested over 20% of the African-American male population, all off the sole testimony of Coleman, who ultimately it turned out to be that he had a criminal record himself and had been fired from another police department for lying and stealing. Um, But our system works in a way in which the sole testimony of one officer could cost you your life. And there were several people who were falsely incarcerated for at least four years in this case. And so um, there is this way in which the system is set up where you can uh, coerce people into agreeing to plea bargains when they know they didn't do the crime, but they also know that they can't afford to have proper legal representation and they don't want to trust their lives to a public defender or somebody who might not have a vested interest in their case. And so there is this manipulative way in which the system is set up to their disadvantage. That we have a system that works better for you if you're guilty and rich than if you're poor and innocent. And wow. that's, that's at the crux of the problem. Yes. Well, we're going to come right back. We're going to take a quick break. Um, and thank you for listening to Love Never Fails Radio. To join in the fight for love, visit loveneverfailsus.com. Don't go away. Love Never Fails Radio will return right after these messages from our sponsors.
Welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio, where you are invited to turn your compassion into action and love those in your midst. Well, welcome back to Love Never Fails Radio, and we're going to just go over a couple of events. Thank you so much to our guest, Pastor Dominique Gilliard. Nice to have you on. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Again, if you would like to get a copy of this book, we're going to go ahead and give out two free books uh, to those of you who reach out on our Facebook page and or give us a call at 844-249-2698. So please do do that. Uh, The first two people to reach out will receive a free book and we'll get that shipped out to you. In addition, um, you can uh, meet up and uh, actually uh, hear a, a word from the Lord from Pastor. Pastor Dominique uh, Gilliard at First Covenant Church in Oakland, and he will be there for the first two services and then the book launch party at 3 p.m. Um, also, I want to encourage you to come out to the Break Free Run where Love Never Fails will have a table. That's Saturday, January 20th from 730 to 1130. That's on our website. Um, also want to encourage you to come out uh, to our Freedom Saturday at Market Street Church on the 27th of January. I'll be speaking there on the topic of reclaiming love, and we will uh, be uh, giving out some awards to some survivor leaders as well as District Attorney Nancy O'Malley and um, uh, Alameda County Supervisor Nate Miley, uh, and then our survivor leader and LNF board member Brianna Williams. Uh, so come on out and join us there. And of course, our um, outreach this morning month has been canceled. Um, so don't uh, don't uh, come out on the third Saturday of this month. Uh, we're taking some time to pray about how we're going to launch in an even greater way. Um, and uh, But this is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month, so we encourage you to get out. Tell your community about what you're learning on the show. Tell your community about, um, you know, what God has put on your heart uh, as we commit to loving as Christ loves us. And of course, we want to make sure that that you know if you haven't heard uh, this from anyone before and I can't believe that would be true but if you haven't we want you to know that you are loved. Thanks for joining us this week on Love Never Fails Radio. We trust that you've been inspired by these stories of hope and love and that you'll accept our challenge to get involved by contacting us at loveneverfailsus.com by liking and sharing our Facebook page Facebook slash Love Never Fails Radio, or by making a contribution directly to Love Never Fails. This program is the broadcast outreach of Love Never Fails, which is a donor-supported nonprofit ministry that Vanessa founded as a way of directly impacting the lives of young people who are trapped in or at risk of becoming involved in human trafficking. This broadcast needs your involvement and support. To find out more, simply go to loveneverfailsus.com and click on the radio show link. Today's program was brought to you in part by Case Industries, as well as supporters from Faith Fellowship, New Hope Christian Fellowship, and the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. On behalf of Vanessa and the whole team at Love Never Fails, thank you for listening, and thank you even more for committing to turn your compassion into action and love those in your midst. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.